Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to the February 2021 edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. And as always, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Cormac O'Lara, who is MD of Electrios Energy and an expert on the China battery industry. Welcome, Cormac. Thanks, Matt. Delighted to be back again. Let's drop straight into the news and, and the discussions for this month. There have been quite a lot of news flow out of China this month. Do you want to sort of give us a background yeah. on some of that stuff? It started, uh, January has been a huge month uh, for the battery industry globally. Uh, the, we had a Tesla day back in September 2020, a long time ago now it seems, but the, the amount of announcements have come out during January 2021 is, uh, puts a Tesla day into, uh, you know, pales into, uh, for Tesla day. Some of the major announcements were the 1,000-kilometer uh, premium uh, uh, sedans, most notably announced by NEO on, during the NEO day early in the first week of uh, January. That was uh, quite a, a bold uh, announcement where they announced the uh, 150 kilowatt hour battery, which has a range of a thousand kilometers. And it will be the first day, I think they announced it would be solid state. And then they kind of rolled it back to semi-solid, but it's uh, the cell will be something akin to what has been announced by QuantumScape. And this is like a premium product, yeah? This is not a mass market product. Neo is a uh, premium car brand, yeah. They haven't really launched any uh, lower-end uh, cars uh, similar to what uh, Tesla have done, which are covering the whole range. Uh, during Neo, they, they announced the ET7, which is their new premium sedan uh, with a range of 1,000 kilometers. And anyone else out with a 1,000-kilometer um, battery? Uh, yeah, the newest automaker in the uh, Chinese scene, which is a ZG, which is a joint venture between SAIC and Alibaba. They've also announced that they'll have a cell in their new premium sedan that will also have a range of 1,000 kilometers. So the 1,000 kilometers seems to be the new base, base range in the premium uh, electric vehicle market. Tesla Flat also, which will be coming out later uh, this year, also will have a, a, a battery range very close to 1,000 kilometers. I think it's a just shy of 900. But, uh, you know, there'll be a few different versions of that. So maybe Tesla will be able to boost it up to 1,000. And uh, Lucid Air also is uh, getting very close to 1,000 kilometers. And these are all uh, premium sedans. And do we know anything about the chemistries of, of these batteries? In, in the Chinese market, Neo, ZG, and GAC, GAC, I forgot to mention, also have announced a, the GAC Eon with the 1,000-kilometer capacity range. And uh, all these announcements in China were within days of each other. So it's hard to tell how much of this is actually technology, how much of this is marketing. Actually, some of the esteemed Chinese experts for battery chemistry have uh, come out and said they, they don't believe this, actually. This uh, thousand kilometer range, fast charging in eight to 15 minutes, depending on, on whose announcement you're reading. They just don't think the chemistry can back up all these claims. But uh, as you uh, just asked about the chemistry, each of the Chinese manufacturers have uh, a different technique. So uh, Neo is uh, using a semi-solid state battery, which they don't have right now. I think this announcement is for 2023. Uh, they'll be using a higher percentage silicon carbon anode, which will be uh, 
pre-lithiated. So one of the big problems with capacity is uh, losing lithium during SEI formation. But if you pre-lithiate the uh, anode you, in advance so uh, that you can that you don't you lose vast amount of lithium during the SEI formation, you get to keep the capacity. So the capacity you get nameplate on the cell might be you know, 10% less by the time uh, you've cycled the battery and created the SEI on the anode side. So these are the, uh, the technological steps that these companies are doing. And not only is NEO doing the pre-lithiation, so is ZG. They're also using a, a silicon carbon anode, which would be pre-lithiated. And GAC have used, uh, are planning to use graphene for their cells. Uh, graphene, so they can use graphene as a conductor, electron conductor, on the surface of whatever's going to be under anode, most likely a carbon silicon as well, and also on the cathode side. And some of the benefits are of graphene are high conductivity, so you can quickly uh, charge your um, battery pack, and also it's very good at, um, at thermal displacement, moving heat away from the battery. So um, each of them have a slightly different approach. But when you say it's a silicon carbon anode, how much silicon are we talking? Are we talking 5%, 10% or, or more? No idea. It should be, can't be that much. I think it's, it's this is current silicon uh, carbon anodes, graphite anodes, composite anodes, which have been around for a while, and they seldom get much more than uh, 15%. I think they'll be still using uh, relatively low amounts of silicon in, in these anodes. But all these announcements came with no details. That's the right. other things. Yeah. As per usual, yeah. So that's the thousand kilometers, and, and, and obviously, cattle's been pretty active this month as well in terms of, of announcements. What do you got for us on that side? They've announced a huge amount of a, a capacity expansion in, for their Chinese market. They're building three new factories, investing close to 30 billion RMB, and they will increase their uh, total capacity by the time all these factories get going up close to 370 gigawatt hours. And I think this goal is for 2023. So that'll be uh, almost three times, two and a bit times of what the market is today. So CATL have been very aggressive and not just on uh, capacity expansions, also on technological innovations also and signing uh, 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 supply agreements. Uh, they've just uh, signed an agreement with Hyundai also to supply, um, I don't know which type of cell, but most likely the NMC uh, for their new production line Hyundai. I forget what it's called. Uh, GMP. GMP, that's it, yeah. But I mean, the big question on cattle is, that's great that they're expanding battery capacity to that much. How are they going to supply it? How are they going to get the raw materials to supply it? Because uh, that's a lot of battery capacity in sort of two or three years. Well, that's what you always come back to, the raw materials. And I think we're seeing the uh, squeeze and, and the crunch now, now at this moment in time, then more than we've ever seen before. And China's never faced this situation. They faced it this month. There was a growing uh, deficits, not really deficits, are neither shortages, but prices increased for uh, lithium carbonate. Actually, lithium carbonate this month was more expensive than lithium hydroxide. And a, a lot of my Chinese clients are contacting me asking to help source some lithium carbonate. They can't get it in China at the moment. January That's amazing because there have been quite elevated shipments of lithium carbonate out of Latin America over the last couple of months. I assume then that those are just not high enough grade for the demand that's coming out of the battery makers? Oh, I'm talking to chemical manufacturers, so they'll take industrial grade also. I, I believe industrial grade prices have also been increasing this month, so people are buying the industrial grade also. I don't know who's tying it all up. Maybe these 
shipments are for the larger battery manufacturers who have the long-term agreements in place. But if you stay, take one or two steps down the uh, supply tier, these guys have uh, very limited access to materials. It's all good news from the battery materials perspective. So no complaints on this end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, And uh, you were asking where CATL are going to get their, all their um, materials. They, CATL have been down in Indonesia for a number of months now, signing agreements to uh, source, especially nickel from down there and others. CATL, as rumored, will be... Have, actually, they, I think they signed an agreement with the Indonesian government that they will open a battery factory, factory there at some stage. And a lot of the Chinese cathode precursor material companies are down in uh, Indonesia as well. We see uh, EA Spring just signed an agreement to source nickel and cobalt from um, Chinese company Ligand, which has a joint venture with the Indi- Indonesian uh, company uh, Harita. So they signed an eight-year nickel cobalt supply deal. So the Chinese companies... Chemical companies are out there sourcing materials and signing agreements. They see it coming. And, I think uh, the thing about nickel that's very interesting is it's noticeable that nickel is one of the poorest performing baskets among our equity baskets. And I, even though the nickel price has done very well, and I think it, it is to do with that laterite supply overhang in Indonesia that people see coming. But there's only really been one successful nickel laterite project I just worry it's going to either take these companies longer than expected to get into production, or it's going to take them longer to get up to spec. That's a key thing for battery battery materials. I just don't think that the, the nickel market is going to be in oversupply at any stage. I think that the equity market, to some extent, has got that wrong. And you're certainly seeing some reasonably good value for, for, for nickel equities at these sort of levels, I think. Similar to what I just mentioned about lithium carbonate, Chinese chemical companies are also reaching out looking to source nickel sulfate. The prices are all-time high in China at the moment, and it's difficult to get your hands on. They're not looking for Chinese supply. They're looking for international supply. Oh, well, good luck with that. There's not an awful lot of it. There's the uh, Western Australian plant that BHP has been building. Apart from that, most things are on the drawing board at this stage. So uh, unless they're going to start uh, melting down nickel metal, I, I don't think that there's uh, going to be very much uh, coming through. I think that's going to happen eventually. Someone's going to have to do it because uh, if things continue on now, some people are blaming this on uh, the lead up to Chinese New Year. But we, we were seeing this throughout December as well. These prices have been going up for a while and battery electro materials also. So, it's noticeable, uh, actually. I mean, when I look at the numbers, basically, battery material prices troughed in what August, September, and really the whole of the complex has been rising since the fourth quarter. So it's not just the lithium prices. I mean, cobalt prices, nickel prices, graphite prices, everything's been rising since the fourth quarter, which is great. I mean, a, a synchronous recovery is, is pretty much what we were looking for in the space. The question is how long it can last for. And, you know, my view is I think it can last for quite a long time, given the, the shortage in investment in, in new supply. It's good to see it's, it's synchronized. The whole industry is not synchronized, in, uh, as you often point out, especially in uh, investment. And um, downstream is highly invested in midstream uh, chemical manufacturers getting a lot of investment. The battery manufacturers as you keep saying, the slow raw material mining sector, which might be the slow, you can put up a gigafactory in 18 months, right? The Tesla yeah. proved that or less, and you can probably do the same with a car factory, but not with the uh, any of these raw material mines, actually, not even graphite. 
No, I mean, there's a little bit of sort of debottlenecking and incremental supply that can come on, particularly in, in lithium, where companies, particularly on the hard rock side, have, have lowered production in some of the brine producers. But there's not an awful lot that's going to come on from a greenfield point of view in less than two years, two to three years, realistically. So, you know, people really got to start raising money now. And, and actually, we have seen that in January. January was the biggest month for capital raisings in the battery material space since, since I started tracking the space in 2018. I mean, we had like something like 13, 12 or 13 raises, of which one was very significant. And obviously, at the beginning of February, we've had some very, very big raises, over a billion dollars for some of the big producers. So there's a lot of money starting to flow into the space. But I think people have to be realistic that it's going to be years before we actually see material flowing out from those raisings. And I don't think maybe the industry quite understands how long it will take to bring those assets into production. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I find also there's a little fear in the industry that once recycling kicks off, or kicks in, Europe's more or less planning to be independent and have a sustainable circle where all the raw materials are going to come from the recycling. That's a lovely idea, but I think recycling is a bit of a white elephant for now. I mean, in terms of the battery markets, demand for batteries, production of batteries is rising so fast. Just to put these things in perspective, we made 3 million electric vehicles in 2020. We're forecasting 14 million in 2025 and 33 million in 2030. So the amount of material that's available for recycling, bearing in mind that it's probably most electric vehicle batteries have got, what, a 10 or 12 year life at the moment. So the batteries that are being used now won't be available for recycling until 2030, apart from the faulty batteries. I think for me, recycling in terms of supply and demand impact is a white elephant because there won't be enough material that will make a, a difference in terms of supply-demand balances until the mid-2030s at the earliest. There's a good chance that those materials might not be relevant anymore. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there is. I mean, I think this is one of the things that's really impacting, particularly on the nickel side, where there's a really high capital intensity of production developing new mines. It's really putting off long-life developers like uh, the, the majors like BHP and Rio, because yeah. there is this risk that technology and electric vehicles could move on in 10 or 15 years. And, and you know, you might not need nickel. So why am I going to go out and build a nickel project, which could cost me four or five billion dollars, when potentially I would only have a 10-year 10 10-year 10 mine life for it or a 10 or 15-year operating life for it? And for most mining companies, you know, you're looking at a project on a 20 to 30 year time horizon. So that's one of the things I think that is worrying the majors in terms of putting more capital into nickel projects, the consistency of their technology. So I think that that's going to be quite an interesting sort of quid pro quo in the in the coming years. I think we're going to have to settle on a technology, somewhat, a suitable technology that covers our basic needs as commuters, right? And there's a little bit of a move this year or last year towards LFP, which might just be satisfactory for everybody as a way to get around. And then if we could agree on a what battery chemistry we want to use for the next 30 years, then we could build up to that. But 
if you go to any battery presentation, it's every three years in their timeline and their battery roadmap, there's a, a big change in the chemistry that they're planning to use. And you see that in any CATL roadmap. Uh, so I understand the, the hesitancy to uh, put money behind this, something that's changing every three years. Talking about LFP, yeah. and um, you flagged some quite interesting news flow from BYD this month as well. Well, it's interesting that BYD set the, the, this other battery company up you know, to set up a subsidiary uh, to manufacture their uh, battery blade. And they've uh, signed an agreement to supply uh, Hyundai. So this is the first time that I know of that BYD are supplying their batteries to somebody other than BYD. So BYD, you'll notice in all the uh, view graphs over the last number of years of the most, the largest battery suppliers, and BYD is always hovering in the top 10. BYD are, is a massive company in China, but what might have been holding them back is they only build batteries for themselves, both their uh, vehicles and their energy storage business. Now it looks like uh, you know, they're happy with their technology, the blade battery. They, they think it's something that can really benefit the industry and, uh, and now are willing to supply it to EV makers like Hyundai. And this blade battery, uh, I mean, uh, the, I think the big model that they launched is in the Han. That's sort of like a middle of the premium range, isn't it? It's not a low-cost vehicle by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I think the Han is pretty close to the premium car, actually. BYD have never been making premium cars. Uh, this will be a new venture for them to get into the premium market. Uh, most of the BYD cars are, uh, as you just mentioned, mid-range. Uh, but I think um, the Han you know, is their attempt of making a premium car, but uh, they've never been a premium car maker. Are you sort of aware or really excited to see the, the blade technology sort of come into the mainstream, as it were. But are, are you aware of BYD having any plans to sort of maybe put that into more of a mass market vehicle? Because obviously, lower cost battery, higher energy density than, than most LFPs, surely you're gagging to put that into a mass market vehicle and, and see what I, it can do. I think do. it is going into their... Uh, it comes in three different versions, like a lot of other EVs, uh, and, and they have a, a mass market version of it also. But the thing about the BYD blade now, it's, it's almost old news because it's a cell-to-pack technology, bypassing the modules, and the industry is moving beyond that to cell-to-chassis. So uh, I haven't seen anything about how BYD plan to integrate this uh, battery into the chassis. So already it's old news, more or less. Okay, sad. But Celta chassis only a year is, uh, old, isn't it? <laughs> not even a year old, but yeah, Celta chassis is more likely for premium. Like you'll see Tesla doing a premium. Uh, and CATL doing it a fair amount, aren't they, as well, yeah. Okay, let's talk about rare earth exports because, of course, Chinese rare earth exports hit a five-year low in 2020. Are you hearing anything on that? Or, I mean, what's the party line on that? The, uh, you know, the exports have taken a little bit of hit in China during 2020, all exports, but they, uh, apparently it was quite difficult to transport rare earths around China during the COVID. And this is one of the reasons I'm hearing why there's such a drop in the, uh, I think it's almost 35, 40% drop in uh, RE uh, exports. So I'm hearing it's COVID, but it could be other factors also. We've kind of seen this sort of behavior before from China during the sort of previous commodity super cycle in steel the first time around and in, and in thermal coal, which is where internal demand got so significant that they stopped exporting. Now, 
that's fine in, in materials like steel and thermal coal, where there's quite a lot of it elsewhere in the world. But in China, or in rare earth rather, where China is sort of 90 to 95% of the supply, wow. if China was to significantly cut down on their rare earth exports, that would be a, a major issue for global markets. And it's uh, one of our focus articles in Battery Materials Review this month is looking at rare earths and the availability of rare earth deposits outside China, of which there is quite a lot. But it's also making the point that it's not enough just to build rare earth mines. You've got to build the midstream and downstream as well. So it's got to be an integrated rare earth industry, including magnet manufacture, which at the moment is dominated by the Chinese. So I think the rare earth sector is is something to sort of keep a very close eye on because if those exports continue to fall out of China, it's all very well to say that we're, you know, we're building mines and we're building plants. But like with other battery raw materials, it takes three or four years to build those. And rare earth magnets are such a core component of electric vehicles that it, it will be difficult if those exports continue to fall. Yeah. Uh, I understood the, the car manufacturers are interested in uh, manufacturing rare earths out of electric motors, especially. How's the success been in that? You know, you mean recycling effectively? Is, yeah. Is that, yeah. So, I mean, I think there are technologies for recycling around. And um, Apple, for instance, is uh, pursuing a technology to recycle rare earths from a lot of its sort of iPods and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, if you look at the size of an iPod compared to the the amount of rare earths that are used in an electric vehicle, it, it's small. So again, you're a victim of a very r- rapidly expanding market and not a lot of supply that's available yeah. for recycling. So yeah, I mean, I think um, there are technologies out there that are being explored, but at the end of the day, it's not going to replace new raw material supply, I think, in the market. So how long would you do you think, it, is it possible to become independent from China? There's two answers to that question. So the first one is, do you have access to to government support? And by government support, I don't just mean financial support, I mean planning support, i.e., you know, governments outside China have to make the process of building new mines easier. So it's not just, you know, by providing financial incentives, they've also got to ease the planning stages and things like that. You know, I happen to know that there's probably five or six what we call critical rare earths, so um, neodymium, chrysodymium, dysprosium, and terbium, in rich mines outside China or mining projects outside China. But generally, as you know, as we've talked about before, three to five years to bring a new mine into production, and it's yeah. not that easy because then you've got to bring the the concentrating plant, the separating plant the purification plants. I mean, Linus, it took them three years to, to iron the technical glitches out of their, of, out of their separation plants. So because yeah. these are very complex metallurgies, it can take a long time to bring these plants in, in, into production and get them operating anywhere close to their targeted production levels. So it's quite, a, it's quite a major thing. I mean, we need to see movement like yesterday, access to capital, accelerated planning, access to research and, and development, all of these things. Yeah, I heard the separation uh, process is a real pain in the ass. It is because this is a group of elements which are very, very close to one another. 
in terms of their chemical makeup, in terms of their properties. So actually separating them, I mean, you know, separating, for instance, nickel and cobalt in a mine project is easy because they're, you know, they're very, very different chemically. But separating, yeah. for instance, cerium from lanthanum or neodymium from chrysodymium is, is a little bit more difficult. So uh, yeah, it, it's a very involved processing route. Moving swiftly on, one of the big news items this month, certainly outside China and globally, was the General Motors rebrand focusing on, on electric vehicles. Did you, did you see any of the adverts? Did you see the Super Bowl advert? It was quite funny. I saw the Super Bowl. Didn't see the advert. This is, um, which advert was that? This was the uh, General Motors advert, which had um, Will Ferrell. Uh, oh, Will Ferrell, yeah, I saw that. Sorry, yeah, the uh, yeah, 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 I saw that, yeah. Yeah, the Chevy, uh, yeah. yeah. I think it's a it's a big thing because, of course, the the U.S. OEMs, with the exception of Tesla, were pretty slow on the whole electric vehicle thematic. So, to see GM moving forward with this really substantial rebrand, focusing on electric vehicles, um, it's not just the Super Bowl commercial. There's a, a, other commercials out there. Everybody is the tagline. That's quite a big thing to have one of the world's largest automakers rebrand itself around electric vehicles. And obviously that follows the European automakers, a number of which have rebranded themselves. So I think that should be very, very... Volkswagen rebranded themselves without, without a big campaign. They kind of hoped nobody noticed that they were now a EV manufacturer. Yeah, well, I mean, I think VW has gone large, but uh, I think a, a lot of the European... Guys, I mean, you see so many commercials for um, electric vehicles in Europe. I mean, probably if you watch TV, three or four adverts an hour for electric vehicles. So it really is, um, you know, not major rebranding, but it certainly has crept up uh, quite rapidly. GM have been involved in electric vehicles a long time, uh, even before they produced the uh, Chevy Volt. Yeah. Uh, they had huge interest in uh, lithium-ion batteries. Uh, I remember when I was back in the U.S., in the early 2000s, uh, GM were heavily involved and way ahead of Ford. And Chevy or GM have been in a long time, so I wasn't surprised. You know, they being you know they produced the Volt and the Bolt, so they always had an interest. Yeah, but yeah, they are known as a big gas guzzling truck company for sure. I noticed their logo. Their logo is very similar to uh, a Chinese brand, uh, Xiaomi. The M is is almost identical. So it looks like a uh, a joint venture, but um, a number of uh, automakers have changed their uh, uh, logos in the last couple of months to uh, to show their commitment to the uh, new EV industry. There's a kind of a, just showing it like more fine line logo. This, I saw a, a graph of them quite recently, and it was a fine line, simple logos, not thick, chunky logos, which mm. you know showing oh we got big SUVs. Uh, kind of this is like fine line, environmentally friendly logos. Interesting. So, uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, Biden taking over the reins uh, was uh, really put a lot of momentum behind the, uh, I don't want to say EV movement, but the clean energy uh, movement in the US. So maybe finally we'll see uh, US really emerge as what they could be. And as you just pointed out with GM, uh, a, a EV clean energy powerhouse. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting, you know, in the US is the juxtaposition between private and, and, and federal support. And obviously, with Biden coming into the White House, we're going to see federal support for the first time in, in quite a long time. But 
actually we've seen very significant private buy-in to, to clean energy over the last five years. I mean, obviously there's Tesla out there, there's, there's GM that we've talked about, there's yeah. a number of battery plants under development in the US. And in addition to that, I mean, probably what, six or seven of the largest battery storage, so stationary storage projects in the world are also in the US. So we have seen, you know, pretty good private support for clean energy in the US, but it will obviously be very interesting to see what sort of acceleration we see now we're we're going to see broad-based federal support for it as well. US is leading leading the way in energy storage. I think we talked about it the last time. California, for example, and the 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 coasts are you know have uh, are doing quite well. So the overall picture of EV adoption as US and a whole doesn't look good on paper. But if you just isolate California, New York, some of the other East Coast states, the EV penetration is a lot higher. I think in California, for all plug-in uh, electric vehicles, is pretty close to eight percent. Very high. And obviously, you know, a number of states recently have brought in sort of ICE bans or targeted ICE bans. So there is movement, grassroots movement in the US that perhaps people don't appreciate to the extent that they should. I get a lot of inquiries about energy storage in the US. So US gets a lot of, uh, you know, once they left the Paris Accord, now they're, they're back in again. They get a lot of stick in the industry about being behind the rest, Europe especially. They've been there, it's just, uh, it's not as noticeable as some of the policies coming out of the EU Commission, which is almost on a weekly basis, they just uh, passed another uh, financial support for the battery industry. I think it was almost 3 billion euros. Yes, I'm, I'm not overly happy about that. Uh, again, right. you know, you've got to focus on the sort of midstream and downstream industry and almost no raw material projects in there at all. So, uh, I mean, once again, you know, you've got the, the EU focusing mid and down and, and ignoring the, the issue of raw material shortages, it seems. Yeah, I think they stopped at just chemicals as raw materials. Okay, that's okay, brilliant. Yeah. So we'll call it a wrap there. And I'll say to Cormac, thanks very much for joining us today. And we look forward to talking again next month. Thanks, Matt. I'll talk to you again next month. Yeah, great. Cheers. Have a good month. Moving on to our interview now. So I'm delighted today to welcome Chris Shepherd from Pallinghurst Group. Pallinghurst's a mining specialist investor, which staked its claim quite early on in the battery material space. And Chris is partner and managing director of the group. Chris, welcome to Recharge today. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Excellent. So Pallinghurst has suggested that it plans to be a major investor in the battery material space. You've obviously got a lot of history in the resources space as a whole. What is it that particularly excites you about battery materials? Fundamentally, Pallinghurst identifies thematics, and and we invest in long-term attractive opportunities within that thematic. So we identified battery raw materials as an attractive thematic several years ago now. I guess in hindsight, that's turned out to be a pretty good decision. I personally, and we're Pallinghurst personally, think we're we're all going to look back on 2020 and 2021 as as a bit of a tipping point for the energy transition. The way we source and use energy across the globe is changing. It's changing away from fossil fossil fuels. And I think that change is no longer disputed. Specifically, when we talk about EVs, um, and, and this won't be new to any of your list- listeners, there's now broad support across the board. Governments are going all in. And more importantly, in my view, the customers are too. It's no surprise to me that every car manufacturer 
is electrifying their entire lineup. And I've always said to our investors and people in the industry that it's the car manufacturers that know the customers and where, what the customers want and what the customers will want in five, 10 years' time better than anyone else. I think we're seeing across the board all of the big car manufacturers are going all in as well. As a result of that, we, we at Palingas, we see an unprecedented battery materials demand coming. And we've obviously positioned ourselves for that and we'll continue to position ourselves for that. So it's, it's an opportunity as an investor. And I think we're determined to, to be a catalyst in, in this green energy transition and, and to play a key role for a cleaner future. Okay, great. You've made two major investments in the space so far in lithium and graphite. We'll talk about those in a minute. But are those the only attractive battery materials from your point of view, or are there other materials out there that float your boat? There's definitely other materials, Matt. Our investors have tasked us to provide them with an exposure to a diversified range of attractive battery materials, and, and that's what we're doing. Nouveau Monde and Namaska were just the first of those, and, and, and there will, of course, be others. What else interests us? Like many, we see the so-called uh, polymetallics, uh, they have very interesting investment propositions as well, whether whether it's copper, cobalt, nickel. They've all got attractive elements to them. And I'm sure your listeners are, are well aware of the benefits of copper in the EV, the benefits of cobalt for battery stability in the battery. And, and I, I guess from an investment point of view, potential supply source concerns, reconcentration in, in certain jurisdictions. And the same with nickel. There's a strong, strong uh, expected growth in, in demand for back nickel in batteries there and potential supply source concerns as well. We're looking at investments in all of these and, and we do have a strong pipeline. For now, the entire battery material space is exciting and, and it's to various degrees in, in various assets. Um, I guess for us, we see there's a big opportunity. It just must be executed flawlessly by, by an experienced team. You know, it's fair to say that graphite doesn't get as many column inches as lithium. It's certainly not perceived as a sexy material. So what is it in particular about the graphite space that excited you? We think it is very much misunderstood and lots of education is needed. I think your graphite 101 that you published early last year, I think it was, was a great resource for investors in this respect. For us, the exciting story around graphite, and this is no surprises around the lithium-ion batteries, but for batteries, the focus has always been on the cathode, whereas the graphite in the anode represents less than 1% of a mid-level EV price, of the sticker price for a mid-level EV. You could even double or triple that graphite price, and it's still less than 2%. So there's huge price inelasticity of the anode material, and it hasn't in the past got EV or battery makers' attention for that, for that reason. I say in the past because we, we believe that as the EV growth ramps up, Consistent battery quality material at scale is becoming a concern to the industry and it will continue to be a concern. So importantly, from my perspective, let's just say over, overlaying all of this, the graphite dominates the anode. It's irrespective of cathode chemistries, the graphite is the dominant anode material. Whether we're talking LCA to the NMCs, 8s, 6s and 5s to the LFP, they all have an anode. And the graphite dominates that now, and it will continue to, to in the future. Our discussions with car and battery makers support this position and give us the confidence to invest in, in, in graphite. And then I guess from a supply side, we've historically all been, it's all come from China. There's obviously issues with that, whether it's quality and consistency or even the, let's just say, uh, questionable 
environmental practices, there's a bit of a supply issue. So you've got extraordinary demand coming, but the supply is a little bit more concerning. So with the backdrop of that long-term fundamentals, we actually do see it as quite sexy. We're starting to see that it is starting to catch the investor's attention. Okay, that's great. And Nouveau Monde Graphite, which is listed on the TSX, was your first major investment in the space. What was it about that opportunity in particular that really stood out for you? Thanks, Matt. Firstly, Nouveau Monde is a tier one asset and in a tier one jurisdiction, and it ticks all of the boxes for us from an asset perspective. It's a very large ore body, which is obviously important in mining. It's important for the downstream customers. We can provide scale in the future. It's an easy to mine open pit, which uh, provides inherent cost, uh, cost and safety advantages. It's simple to process with high achievable grades and recovery. It's in a great location in Canada. It's, it's, it's less than two hours drive from Montreal, which uh, isn't normal for a lot of these other projects around the world to be so close to such a, a great city. It's got great infrastructure and, and particularly hydropower to support it. And it, it's located close to the end customers. So you, you add all of that end customers in US and Europe. Um, so you add all of that and all of this, um, we think, will position the company as a low-cost, reliable anode material producer for the lithium-ion battery industry. And that, that's just the asset. And then on top of the asset, we've got an incredible management team. They've got which, – which, was unusual when we did a global scan of all the assets several years ago. And as we continue to scan the industry, the graphite experience is at Nouveau Monde is unparalleled. They have a lot of people from Imaris and SGL Carbon and other major players, and they recognised where they had gaps and they partnered with key institutions such as Hydro-Quebec, and they actually did a, quite a bit of hiring uh, and, and got hiring expertise from, from China and elsewhere. They've adopted an approach where they've... Uh, de-risk the asset in a very conservative manner through its demonstration facilities. They've optimised their process and, and effectively through, through all of that, they're, they're on, on, their, on the path to product qualification. To summarise, when we looked at this and we wanted to go into graphite, we saw it as the premier asset in graphite. It can produce carbon-neutral, battery-grade anode material at an attractive price. Okay, okay, that's, uh, that's pretty full. And then your second major investment in the space was in uh, Namaska Lithium. Now, that project's had some quite significant growing pains. What gave you enough certainty to pull the trigger on that opportunity? Matt, growing pains is, a, is quite an eloquent way to describe that one. I'm not going to dwell on what went wrong there. I think it's well documented in the industry. But from our perspective, like Nouveau Monde, Namaska ticks all the boxes of a global top-tier asset. It's got very similar characteristics to Nouveau Monde there with a great ore body, easy to mine open pit, great infrastructure. It's positioned as one of the lowest cost producers in the industry, or it will be when it's in operation. I guess an important thing for me was that it also validated its product through uh, various offsake agreements uh, through its demonstration facilities as well. So when, when we went in, we, we did well over a year of DD on Namasco, and then this was in-house uh, DD with all of our technical experts in-house. And that, that's what got us uh, certain, enough, certain enough or comfortable enough to invest. We see it as, a, as having all the key ingredients of a global top-tier asset, and um, we believe that we know how to develop it accordingly, and, uh, and, and we're planning to do that. And I guess I'd just 
finally on the Namaskar, we, we've also gone, as you've probably read and you, your listeners know, we, we've introduced Livent as our partner, which is Livent's obviously a, an industry leader in lithium. And, uh, and, and along with the Quebec government, we're all excited for this next stage of development for the company. Brilliant. Okay. Namaskar is a hard rock project. So would you look at other types of lithium deposits as well, such as brine or clay or geothermal, or, or do you think hard rock is really the place to be? We have looked at other types and, and, and we'll continue to do so. I do think it's fair to say that Pallinghurst DNA is, uh, is in mining and we've been extremely successful in that in the past, and so in mining and processing. And then that has led us to uh, a hard rock focus. Let me just say, like, there are challenges in all types of mining projects and, and lithium is no dif- different, uh, whether it be hard rock, whether it be brine or clay. But importantly, we do see interesting opportunities elsewhere. But for now, I think Namaska is our priority focus in the lithium sector. Okay, great. And both of your major investments have been in Canada and Quebec in particular within Canada. What is it about that jurisdiction that you like? And would you look at other jurisdictions? There's two parts to that one, Matt. Let, let me firstly just address Quebec. It, it's As everyone would know, Quebec has a long mining history and it's a fabulous place to operate. It has favourable regulation and policies in place. It's got a supportive government and investors and it's got excellent infrastructure, both its people, which shouldn't be underrated, and established physical infrastructure such as the low-cost hydro that it has the benefit of. And I think importantly and finally, just on Quebec, it, it has a strong, well-understood partnership approach with the local communities, and, and this very much aligns with our with Pallinghurst ethos in uh, developing projects. I think in terms of the other jurisdictions where we'd invest, it, it's, we, we definitely would invest in other jurisdictions. Our focus is on Tier 1 jurisdictions in Europe, North America, and Australasia. We believe that Sustainable development leading ESG principles are the cornerstone of any investment, and uh, it's always been that way for us. Before it was fashionable, it underpinned our approach. It provides the, uh, let's just say, the, 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 a true social license to operate, and it's always been critical to us in our investments. So I guess in summary to your question, where else would it, we'd invest? I, I think it's fair to say that jurisdictions which embody that same philosophy are open for us. So we'll come on to to ESG in a moment, but I think one of the trends that's become very important in the sector recently is localization of the supply chain. Do you think it's viable as Pallinghurst as an investor for North America and Europe to build out an entirely localized battery supply chain? And if that's the case, what needs to change for that to happen? This is a tough one, Matt. And I I think we're talking about in, in what time frame. I do believe it's, it's viable, and, and in our view, it, it is already happening. Will it take a lot of hard work and a lot of investment? Yes. But North America and Europe do have a lot of the raw material resources needed to build up their battery supply chain on, on their doorstep. They've got supportive governments implementing policies which will boost upstream development, but they must continue to do that and, I, I guess, even increase what they're doing there in, the, in, that, uh, in, in that respect. Private companies are also collaborating and forming JVs with upstream companies too in in order to vertically integrate and localise the supply chain, and we're having lots of discussions in that respect. I need to be clear on this point, Matt. It's it's going to need a huge investment and required from the private sector. I guess I'm directing it in large part to the downstream customers uh, in in whatever form the investment takes. But but yes, I, I do think it is something which is a focus, and I do think it's something which is possible over time. 
So another key thematic in the sector at the moment is ESG. What do you say to ESG specialists that say that natural resources can't be an ESG compliant investment? Yeah, this one is perplexing, Matt. When these so-called specialists say ESG compliant, I, I presume they're usually focused on the E and um, my response is just generally to, to tell them, look, banning mining is not the solution. Um, and I ask them, these same people, where if they have a phone, if they have a TV, a car or even a house, like where do those materials come from? But the focus on is, is should be on how it's done and, and the, the natural resources industry as a whole, and it's, it's not all participants, but it's, uh, it's, it's as a whole, is at the forefront of this PSG movement, in my opinion. And we've had to be that way in order to secure and maintain the social license to operate, which we discussed earlier, which is, which is so critical to the success of any mining operation over the, over the long term. In my view, it's, it's about operating in a manner that's sympathetic to the local environment and all of the stakeholders involved, whether that's the community, the employees, the customers, and even our own suppliers. It's the way that you operate with those stakeholders. And, and in the case of the environment specifically, obviously employing the best environmental rehabilitation practices that is possible is a key. And, and all of that is a focus for us and we hold it uh, at the core of our operations at Pallinghurst. And obviously, you talked about ESG with regards to your investments earlier. What particular ESG advantages would you say that your two investments in the sector are bringing to the party? There's so much common to both projects, and and I've touched on the clean renewable hydropower. That's common to both. They both have minimal in-country transport to conversion facilities, which obviously gives operating cost benefits and obvious carbon footprint benefits. And the same with being close to the being vertically integrating to the North American market, it, it, that has carbon footprint uh, benefits versus peers as well. And I think they both Nouveau Monde and Namaska have close community relations and, and aligned stakeholders, which is critical. In terms of the specific examples for each project, I'll do Nouveau Monde first. Nouveau Monde's building the world's first all-electric open pit mine for carbon neutral operations, which I think is is incredible. It has. In terms of its downstream uh, downstream value-added processes, it, it has a proprietary thermochemical purification, which consumes less energy and is lower cost than its peers. And importantly, the, this purification process we're using is not using hydrofluoric acid, which is prevalent in China. That's an incredibly dangerous acid that only some jurisdictions allow, and we've managed to avoid that. We've avoided that through our, through our process. If I turn to Namaska, we're also exploring there an option of an all-electric mine. It would make sense with that hydropower benefit that, that Quebec provides. I guess another key example would be the electromembrane process, which is, which is very well known and well understood. It's also low cost and it's possible because of Quebec's cheap hydro. So, so through this process, we have low reagent consumption. And importantly, our reagents are recycled in the process. So we're, we're reducing any disposal requirements. And I guess potential investors or private or as well as professional listening to this are, are sort of sitting there. And I guess that the major question that they would have for you is, what are you really looking for in a battery material project? What, what really stands out for you? What, what makes project a Pallinghurst project? Good question, Matt. We have some basic building blocks when, when we, in our investment approach or when we target an asset. But these shouldn't be a surprise to people. It's fundamentally the project needs to be technically viable. We have our in-house due diligence team 
all who have technical expertise across all the facets, so geology, mining, processing, they do a, a huge amount of work, a bottom-up analysis of every project, and, and they investigate every aspect of that project. So it has to work technically. And then we, we, we obviously look at the ESG principles of the project, and, and I think I've addressed these at length earlier, um, so I won't go into them for your listeners again. The investment needs to have a strong and experienced management team. I think it's important that they're methodical at their project development, but yet we need to have the feeling that they can come up with creative solutions when they're required. We need to be convinced of that. And importantly, we we always seek a good relationship with all stakeholders, including the the, the, the local government. We, we we see ourselves as a, a steward, I guess, of uh, the host community's resources that we're, we're going to be operating in. We always want to be invited in as partners. That's incredibly important for us uh, for a long-term partnership and long-term operation. And then, Matt, obviously, from, from an investment perspective, uh, the economics or the returns, they, they must meet certain thresholds for our investors, which, which I, I don't think would be any surprise to you. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much. And just one final question. We've obviously seen the investment floodgates open particularly for lithium in the last couple of months. And we've seen a lot of money flowing into the sector, which I, I, I certainly am not complaining about. But some of it's into pretty early stage assets. What boxes, in your view, do projects have to tick before the risk level is, is low enough for you as a professional investor to, to invest? From Pallinghurst's perspective, when, when we go into an investment, we want to be convinced that that, that is going to be a valuable operating mine for our investors. In order to do that, we, we have to do a lot of DD on the way in. I think in order to do that DD, there has to be, for us, there has to be a, a lot of technical information available that we can actually diligence. A lot of the earlier stage projects may not necessarily have that technical information, such as exploration projects or, or slightly later available. I think that can be dangerous for non-specialist investors. There are obviously specialist investors who can look at uh, exploration projects and are willing to take calculated risks there because they they can see things which uh, the the non-specialist investors can't, but that is not our target area. I guess what I'm saying is the information needs to be there for what type of investor you are and investors need to be very careful. There's a lot of people out there um, who will who could effectively sell ice to Eskimos, and uh, investors need to be careful. I, I suggest that uh, a lot of them should be taking diversified approaches to in, in their asset, but that doesn't mean just throwing uh, lots of darts at a dartboard. And I, I think it's you, you need to take advice from experienced people when that is available to you, and do your work on the way in. Okay, I think that is a very good piece of advice and probably a great place to end. So Chris Shepard from Pallinghurst Resources, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Matt. So that's the end of our February podcast. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've covered in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find on our website at batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.